Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as, is there something that you wish you hadn't spent so much time or money planning? I'm your host, Andrew Bonaponte. Today we are joined by Alessandra DeSanto of the Halo app. Thank you for joining us, Alessandra. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's good to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. I grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, a big Italian family, as my name would indicate. My mom was born and raised there and went to Catholic grade school, high school, and ultimately college at Notre Dame. Started a career in finance, actually, working on Wall Street in, in New York City before moving to Chicago for a similar job. And then a few years ago, had a series of kind of life-changing experiences in prayer with some friends that resulted in us feeling called to help make uh, prayer more accessible to people in a modern mobile digital format. And so we quit our jobs and built Halo, which is a Catholic prayer and meditation app. Right. And from what I understand, it's like the Calm or Headspace apps, but actually informed by sacred tradition. That's totally right. I would just clarify that it's not secular meditation with a little bit of Catholic in it. It right. is kind of uses the same technology of play, pause, audio feature, but authentically and 100% grounded in the Catholic contemplative traditions, things like Lectio Divina, the Rosary, the Divine Mercy Chaplet, the Examine, your kind of tried and true Catholic prayer approaches. Yeah. And I bet, especially in the pandemic, people are looking for that in a more uh, intentional way. So from what I can tell, Hallow is blowing up right now. Yeah, we've been super blessed. I think, you know, we've used these past two years to really just try and serve as many people as we can in accompanying them through some really challenging times, both single people, married people, faith leaders, regular Catholics, just navigating a lot of unique financial, spiritual health challenges. Um, and so we've been super blessed. The app has been used to pray over 35 million times now in just three years across 180 countries. So it's, it's just been a huge blessing. That's awesome. And we'll be sure to have a link to uh, Hallow in the episode notes, which you should definitely check out. And speaking of the pandemic, uh, one thing we are going to be talking about today is the experience of being a newlywed during pandemic times, which you have some immediate experience with, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. So my wife and I started dating now, I guess, six or seven years ago, got engaged right before the pandemic and then went through the marriage planning process pre-pandemic and then audibled with the pandemic and have been married now uh, about a year and a half. Do you remember your original wedding date? Yes. Uh, so I proposed on January 19th. Our original date we chose was October 17th, uh, 2020, mm. which was the week after everybody else wanted, which was 10-10-2020. Uh, so that that was taken, but we did uh, the week later. We ended up keeping that date, but replanning the whole venue and experience uh, due to COVID. And that must have been a real struggle because I know a few other married couples, including one other Notre Dame alumnus, who had to have the whole delay versus downsize conversation. You had to go through that as well, right? Yeah, 100%. And I know that's tough and it varies from like couple to couple and it depends on family situation. And, and I think the family's voice is something that has to be taken into account there uh, for better, for worse, right? That was definitely the case for us. Uh, we both have <laughs> extremely loving and supportive and faith-centered families. I think even with that, though, there's always cultural norms and a lot of the stuff you talk about in pre-Cana. And, you know, I think it's a great exercise in establishing the norms you want for your family mm. and kind of threading the creation of, of your own new family outside of the two individual families and, and balancing all those with a perspective of love, obviously, because that's what you know everyone ultimately wants the same best thing. But certainly when it comes to logistics and traditions where there have to be some kind of trade-offs, some fun conversations. Not everybody has the same idea of uh, leaving father and mother and cleaving to wife in that limited window. Over time, I think it smooths out. Okay, so when you got engaged, 
What are some things that you wish you could have told yourself if you could go back? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And the kind of meeting each other, we had met in college, uh, started dating junior year, graduated and headed to two different cities. And so did long distance for a while. And then we're both in the same city in Chicago where we now live. And so we had done some pretty intentional discernment in very kind of stressful and different scenarios. So we felt pretty confident, obviously, and strong at the point of engagement. So I think the advice really would come around the wedding planning. And I think I was a bit naive in that, oh, we'll just without kind of table setting at the beginning, what our vision was to families, that things would just fall in place. And I think the advice of kind of sitting down with your future spouse, uh, your fiance and saying, you know, what are the things that we want? What are our most important things? What inform those kind of our orienting principles and how we're going to approach wedding planning and then have a everybody around the table conversation with both families and just get all on the same page. I think, you know, we were all both families were overjoyed. We all know each other's families very well, and it was all very exciting. But I think not being intentional about the orienting principles and what really uh, matter to each of us ended up causing a little bit more tension throughout the process than needed to exist. That definitely reminds me of uh, a previous guest that we had on a couple episodes, uh, Richard Budd from the Diocese of Lansing, who does uh, marriage catechumenate. And he was talking about got to have those conversations about how do you plan to spend holidays? Whose family are you going to spend those with? And this, yeah, it sounds like you had a similar experience, maybe not so specifically with holidays, but in general, like how are we going to live our lives in relation to our families going forward? Yeah, I, I think that's totally right. And I think the, in our case, there was a, and continues to be a significant difference in size of family. And so I have a large Italian family. My wife has a smaller traditionally American family. And so balancing, you know, topics like that, and just establishing, you know, again, not boundaries, but the, you know, I think what our orienting principles are on how we want to approach things and and having everybody in the room. Because I think one of the things we've learned since then, I'm sure we'll talk about stuff like this, is that open and honest communication is always the best strategy, both in the marriage and with family. And I think if you have one-off conversations between individuals and not thinking as a, as a team, especially on the wedding planning side, you know, it just ends up being more headaches. Yeah. So specifically when it came to planning the wedding, is there something that you wish you hadn't spent so much time or money planning? Yeah, it's a great question. It ties into the big family thing. I think in the Italian tradition, kind of everybody and their cousins and mothers kind of get brain as, as you might have experienced uh, or observed. And, you know, our original guest list was like 450 people. That was a big focus on trying to have everybody there as opposed to trying to think about what would be the most powerful experience of the sacrament on the day of. Yeah. And I think that ended up being self-resolved because of COVID. We ended up downsizing to 60, which is quite obviously a big drop. Yeah. That, that must've been really tough. Yeah. Not through any uh, intentionality on our part, but the experience of the day of being really focused on having those very intimate moments with obviously each other. Uh, and then, and then a, a close tight knit group ended up being a really, really beautiful experience. So I think worrying less about having every single person there, although I think I, I continue to think it's beautiful to have everyone in your life there, but prioritizing that over the planning of how you're going to experience the sacrament that day, yeah. I think was something that we look back on and pretty clearly agree on. Just from what I've heard from my friends who've gotten married, just that the wedding industrial complex puts so much pressure on you to attend to so many facets of this one day, mostly the reception, not the actual wedding. And it seems like the pandemic might have had a silver lining there in that some of those 
more intense planning aspects you might have been spared from at least a little bit. Yeah. So we ended up actually planning the entire wedding in the two months before COVID hit. Okay. And so I actually went through all of those headaches okay. and, um, you know, industrial complex things and then ended up scaling a lot of that back because of the base got to replan the whole wedding, different venue, different most things. And I think looking back on the things that we ended up really enjoying the most were not necessarily the things were even on our radar. And so, for example, the night before, uh, after the rehearsal, having social time with kind of everyone, we didn't really draw the distinction. Obviously, there's budgetary impacts on that, but we downsized quite a bit, I think really allowed us to have that kind of social get to know you time the day before and then allow us to focus really on the sacramental part the next day and didn't feel like we need to run around and say hi to everybody again because we had, you know, we took pictures with tables and things like that. But I think that allowing for the socialness the day before as it allows and travel always makes that harder. But then really focusing on the sacrament the next day was was uh, ended up being a great thing. I do think that might be becoming a little more common. I've been to a couple of weddings, including at least one, no, two before the pandemic, that the rehearsal dinner wasn't really a rehearsal dinner for just the people who were in the wedding. It was for out-of-towners and... You know, they, they they were really loosening the distinction on who was going to that and who wasn't. And yeah, like you said, it really, it helps when it's a multi-day affair for more people rather than when it's all packed in one day. I totally agree with that. I think I have friends that packed everything onto the one day and so much of their day is a blur. And I think that's a real shame, obviously. Um, and I think kind of having a, drawing it out to the extent possible, and there's always logistical and financial complications of having more people the day before. But if possible, I think that allows you to really be in the moment and not worry about anything the next day. We really need to do the eight-day wedding and reception that some cultures do. You've got, you've got my vote as a yay on that, for sure. <laughs> All right. So uh, we'll actually later on be having a full episode on uh, wedding planning as well. But what was something after the wedding, when you first were married as like a real new newlywed, what was something that surprised you? Yeah, it was, it was obviously a very focused period of transition, given the fact that it was at that point COVID. And so uh, we live in an apartment in downtown Chicago now. And so it was both working remotely, um, you know, via Zoom and things. And so it was 24 seven all the time together. So there was a very heightened period of acclimation. Mm. I don't know if I want to classify this as, as cheesy, but I was very much struck by just the tenderness that I think I grew into post marriage unexpectedly. I'm a relatively analytical person. I'm much more IQ than EQ. And, you know, I hadn't necessarily thought of the experiments of the sacrament as kind of changing that innately. And I'm certainly the same person I was before. But I think that just looking across, you know, the table in the apartment or something to, to Sam, my wife, and feeling there's just a, such a difference of, you know, this is my wife and my job is now to, uh, is to make her happy, to, uh, to, be the husband that results in her becoming a saint. And I think just the tenderness that unexpectedly became a natural, I'm not a perfect husband by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that just the um, internalization of that caring role as husband to love and support, that is significantly different than obviously I loved her enough to want to marry her and went through a period of wedding planning and pre-Cana that was obviously very intentional but uh, just sitting there and saying, this is my wife and all I want is her greatest good. That was unexpected for me. There's hope for us all, all of us non-EQ people. <laughs> my wife is probably going to listen to this and be like, I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's how I feel anyway. Yeah, I realize uh, talking about newlyweds and getting just the husband's side is kind of a fraud enterprise. 
how has your sacramental life lived out on a regular basis changed since being married or has it changed? I would say it has, uh, and there have been some COVID limitations. We live in downtown Chicago mm-hmm. where there's a bunch of uniqueness as well. Yeah. We always in dating prioritize going to mass together. The two things I would change is we made more, we were both Eucharistic ministers before, but we really make a priority to serve in that way together in our parish and really prioritize that co-service together. In previous times, we got assigned to different masses and things, but we've now uh, really focused on doing that together. I also think going to confession together has really become a, a focus of ours. Previously, obviously, there's logistical things of you know living on different schedules pre-marriage, but jointly deciding and and attending, obviously not in the same room at the same time, but uh, going to confession together, having that as a foundation. Alessandro, that's a great idea. They used to do general confessions. Maybe now we can do not so much general, but joint spousal confession. That is pretty intense. I did not know that was ever a thing (laughs) or it was like theologically possible, but I think that might be a harder idea to sell than some of the other things you've said. (laughs) Yeah. No, it was back in the day, early church confession wasn't as frequent a thing. So you would, as I understand it, you would get up in the community, not during mass, but, you know, they did a lot of stuff outside of mass and you would confess your grave sin and then you would get a penance lasting like three years or something like that, or maybe longer. Like it was, it was not nearly as frequent as we do it now, which it's probably an improvement (laughs) the way we do it now. Wow. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty intense. That was my reaction as well. Talking about the sacrament of matrimony in particular, have you noticed new graces from that sacrament as you're going forward in your marriage? Definitely. I think obviously the kind of tenderness. Yeah, you did touch on that already. One that I talked about, but I think even more than that, and this is also, I think a little bit of a a consequence of our personalities. And I already kind of alluded to the IQ over EQ tendency. I tend to be a, if you get a 95 on a test, you know, what were the five things we got wrong and and how do we get to a hundred and kind of growth mindset always improving. And my wife is much more of the um, let's figure out what really matters and what doesn't matter and not sweat the small stuff. And I think that was always a core struggle of ours. And we talked a lot about, it wasn't a blind spot. We, we knew that that existed. I think one of the graces of the sacrament have been to me to really let go of what I would probably characterize as an unhealthy and from a place of pride and control, wanting to control everything and letting go and really understanding what does matter and what doesn't matter. You know, when uh, I'll spill something or something, I'll be like, oh, that's all right. As opposed to freaking out about it, my wife will look at me kind of strangely and say, who are you, me? (laughs) And uh, so I think that kind of oneness of of thought and understanding what's really important has been one of the great graces of uh, marital life. Is there anything I left out or anything you want to add? Yeah, I would just say, particularly in this world of you know, working remotely and, and maybe being, I think, an overall tendency, particularly of, you know, I'm a millennial, this as the border between work and non-work begins to blur more and you're kind of always on the clock and maybe you're kind of your, you Slack or Teams or kind of these constant communication things that are kind of always front of mind. Yeah, I think we've certainly realized that there's a real danger of never really being off of the work mindset. And I think that can really create some challenging effects on the the marriage and the way I've experienced that personally. And I, you know, manage a team. So it's, it's a little bit unique maybe to that perspective, but my job is not as a husband is not to manage the marital union or to, to manage my wife and, 
the dinner conversation shouldn't be like work feedback conversations. Yeah, it's not a pragmatic exercise, right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think we had this conversation three or four months ago as a company, like something's different and it's not feeling good and we need to identify what it is. And I was through discerning about it together, able to identify that it was definitely me and it was definitely that. And so I would encourage people to, especially in the new led phase where you're creating habits that may last a lifetime to really make sure you're intentionally drawing borders around your work and how you are at work and, and how you are in developing yourself as a husband or wife. Um, Cause I at least found it easy to, to allow those to blur just being unaware of, of that. And so that's something I um, feel pretty strongly about. It reminds me of something when your uh, fellow Chicago and Bishop Barron mentioned, I think it was in the beginning of the Catholicism series where he talks about how the best things in life are the most useless. Like you don't desire them for any other reason other than themselves. They don't, they don't accomplish anything else. And I think GK Chesterton has a thing on that too. Pragmatism is like the study of human needs. And one of the chiefest needs is to be something more than a pragmatist. Yeah. And it can be hard to step outside of that view, that constant churn of work, especially when it's so easy for work to access you. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a helpful thing to keep in mind. It's not an exercise in efficiency maximization. Yeah. It's a matter of, of self-gift and listening and, and loving. And that's, those are, those belong in different spheres. Yeah. I would say one other thing I just want to throw out there. I was thinking about kind of in preparation of this conversation. I think in our, when we are single, I think we often have our kind of Rolodex in our mind of the people we go to in different situations for when we're struggling through things, when we want to celebrate through things. And those often um, include our, our families and our parents. And then when we get married and we're navigating things like that, I think we can sometimes unintentionally continue certain behavior that might send frustrating signals to your spouse. Hmm. And so the, I think the classic example is like the Oh, when something's wrong with them, you go talk to your mom or mother-in-law or, or vice versa. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So prioritizing the spouse, your spouse over family and some kind of communication things that may have been, you know, venting conversations or things like that, being aware that sometimes some new norms of prioritization or conversation, at least for me, uh, and I think for us have been, have been useful because you I have experienced that that can cause some frustration uh, in between spouses. Okay. That's actually kind of a relief for me to hear. I don't like being spread out talking to this person about these topics and talking to that person about this other stuff. I like having it all under one roof. So that sounds good. Yeah. I think the, uh, we often talk about this as well. Like your spouse is many things and they're you know the number one thing in your life, but they're also not a trained therapist. And right. Uh, right. I think relying on your spouse to help you solve or navigate certain things that is, can be in many cases unfair to them. If you're, you know, leaning on them on certain things. And, you know, if if there are some things that, you know, maybe you should think about either uh, individual or joint therapy, just to to navigate. Um, I think not being afraid of that, because I think when we lean on our spouses for things that are unfair for us to lean on them on or are beyond what they can provide as, as who they are. um, That's also something that we've talked a lot about um, and wanting to want to be fair to the spouse. Yeah, definitely. When you are going to therapy for, you know, some significant issue, you are loving your spouse, even when you're not necessarily talking to them about that, because you're taking the steps with a specialist to help grow in that, whatever that regard is. 100%. Well, Alessandro, uh, I think that covers everything. I think we've talked about every possible angle of marriage. We've said everything there is to say about the subject, um, and we've pretty much solved it. So unless there's uh, there's more you want to add. No, boom. We, we, we solved, uh, we, we cracked the riddle. Uh, I think we just got to get this out to everybody, and then everybody will have perfect marriages. There so we go. That's, there it is. Great. Solved it. On to the next thing. Alessandro, thanks for joining us. 
Thanks so much, Andrew. God bless. You too. And Kara joins us once again. Welcome back, Kara. Hello, hello. Good to see you guys. And today we are talking about King Richard, a 2021 movie, which is nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, directed by Reynaldo Marcus Green and starring Will Smith, who in real life has some funny ideas about the true definition of love, to quote him from last year, which we can't endorse, but fortunately is not what the movie is about. I originally needed some persuading to uh, watch this movie. Kara was more convinced than I was, but I'm glad I'm glad she convinced me. So Love a good sports movie, but this is, I should say, I feel like people should know, this is more of a family story than it is even a sports movie. Yeah, the line between sport and coach and family is very blurry here. And that's actually kind of a good thing this time. And one thing that's cool about this movie is that it addresses the ways in which that can go bad, which is kind of what brings us here. So <laughs> so King Richard is a movie about the Williams sisters, Venus and Serena Williams, and their father, Richard Williams, who oversaw their development as tennis players and coached them and trained them and prepared them for life as elite, globally renowned athletes, basically. He was definitely their hype man, too. That was, yeah. that was a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, it was cool seeing the real-life clips they showed during the credits of him rooting them on, the real Richard Williams mm. at real games rooting them on. That was very charming. But it was also produced by Venus and Serena Williams along with Will Smith. So they had a hand in this movie's development. So the movie takes place in the early 90s and starts with the Williams family, which is Richard, his wife, and five daughters. All five sisters are so tight-knit, and they get along mm -hmm. so well, even in extremely close quarters. Like, they all sleep in the same bedroom in the, at the beginning of the movie, and complain very little, if at all. They're so well-adjusted, like, there's no real apparent divisions in the family. Like, it's a very cohesive family unit. And they are barely scraping by and looking for a professional tennis coach to take Venus and Serena on full time for free because of their tremendous potential, which is apparent from the outset. It's just that they're not getting many opportunities because nobody wants to train black female tennis players at that point in history, which, from what I understand, was pretty much the precedent. I didn't really know the world of tennis and the fact that it was, you know, heavy air quotes on that, just the fact that it was so stuffy and so elitist in terms of being able to get into a tournament or mm. kind of have access to be able to sort of prove that you could be good. Very elite, very white. And this movie definitely gets that across very well with its various visits to different tennis centers and country clubs. Ridiculous. <laughs> it's not a totally idealized portrait of a family. Like they have their challenges, which we'll get into later, but it's not even idealized in a secular sense because it doesn't bleach the faith life of this family out of the picture either. You see the, the scene where they pray grace. They say Jesus's name in the movie. The wife makes repeated references to her faith commitment. This is a recurring thing that is a, a legitimate part of this family's life and is not sequestered off to this one hour a week kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. It must be a reflection of the fact that both the Williams sisters were involved in the movie. And my understanding is that this was a very black-led film. Yeah, the director's black too. Yeah, the director is black. Will Smith's company did all the production and so made it feel really authentic. And we're sort of out of our depth here because we're a couple of white people talking about black representation. But one of the problems with 
contemporary cultural efforts to represent black people and black culture is that they very often do leave the religion out of it as like this uncomfortable little detail. Well, that's like your little thing, which we don't need to talk about in a wider context. No, we're, we're taking the whole black experience, not just the parts of black experience that we find tolerable. Yeah. One thing that we definitely wanted to talk about, and which I think is the primary focus of both the movie and the reason we wanted to talk about it, is Richard's role as a sports father. I was watching this and I knew that Kara, which I don't think you mentioned this on the air before, you were a division one golfer. And and I was watching this movie and seeing a lot of the, the sports scenes and I thought, man, the D1 athlete in Kara must be blowing her lid right now. <laughs> I'm curious, like, about what? Heading into the competitions and the and the nervousness before you come up against an opponent and seeing how invested the parents are in the highs and lows of individual points that are scored. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's this whole montage, I guess maybe like a third of the way through the movie where Venus is now going to juniors. I played golf at college. And before that, when I was younger, I was like a very intense competitive swimmer. And it's just funny, the whole experience of, yeah, like sports parents, I guess you'd say, you know, you yeah. think of like the dad yelling on the sidelines or something like that. And the way that they showed it here was, you know, the parents coaching from the sidelines. But what was most jarring to me, especially as a golfer, was this like the absolute lack of decorum any of these people had <laughs> or like no sportsmanship in golf, like a very important part of learning the sport of golf, at least, you know, when I was growing up. And certainly if you play competitively, just the way that you conduct yourself on the course is really important. You know, part of that is because a lot of like nice golf courses are country clubs. And so if you're playing competitively, it's like you need to know how to actually take care of a course, you know, things like replacing your divots and stuff like that. But the idea of just like how you're supposed to treat your fellow competitors, I mean, you're like hanging out with two other people for five hours when you're playing a round of golf. And, you know, even if you can't stand the person, like being openly hostile is like a really uncomfortable way to spend five hours with somebody. So yeah. I think that there's like a lot more emphasis on sportsmanship. And I'm sure, you know, slightly blown out of proportion illustration of just like how nasty some of these parents get. But I think the thing that it really points to for me and the kind of the big reason why I had brought this up to you to do this for the podcast, just this idea of trying to mold your kid or like make your kid be something <laughs> which feels just I mean as as a new parent what do I know <laughs> I think that there's a difference between you know sort of my understanding as like a Christian parent that God has a plan for my daughter and like my role as a parent is to raise her in the faith and to like raise her to be able to be the woman that God plans for her to be. And, you know, there's as like a human parent, there's much more of a sense of like discovery about your kid, which is like, oh, I get to like see their personality and like see what they're good at. And the sports parent trope feels like that is inverted. Or, I mean, you hear this all the time with like people who's like, my parents wanted me to be a doctor or something, which is completely divorced from the reality of who the person is. And the thing it got me thinking about, though, was that – and this is like all the more so with Richard, right? Richard is not 
a sports parent in the sense that he's not like berating his kids when they get off of the court. Granted, it helps that they won. So he doesn't have anything to like berate them over. But you see all these scenes of the parents like berating their kids for like not winning or like doing something wrong on the court. And the kids have like internalized that, right? Like you just you also see them like the kids berating themselves when they lose a point. Yeah, totally. Although I also really resonated with that. I was the kid who would always like, I was talking to myself on the course and like, that was not at all because of my parents. My parents were always like baffled as to how to motivate me. (laughs) My mom has stories both ways where she like tried to be motivating and I was like, stop, where she'd be like trying to be supportive. And I'm like, I'm going out there to win. What are you talking about? (laughs) I'm like, my poor mother. She was, she was, she's not into sports. She was like dragged through all of this. But yeah, I think, I think what was interesting is that, you know, a big part of the plot is that Richard has this 85 page plan that he wrote for each of the girls when they were born about like how they were going to grow up and like be these great tennis stars and when you hear that in the movie, you're like, that's absurd and frankly, like sort of scary that you think you've planned out your child's life and that you think you were, you know, omniscient that they were going to become these great tennis stars. But the reality is that the proper parental relationship, our relationship with God is like, he actually does have the plan for us and he does know what is going to be best for us. So let's put aside Richard because Richard's slightly crazy dad also, you know, there's like lots of little things like apparently he had a family before this family that he left. And like, I I don't in any way want to be holding up Richard Williams as the end all be all father. Right. Not at all. Right. But it it just sort of reminded me of the relationship that we're supposed to have with our heavenly father who absolutely has a plan for us. And I think the other the other interesting part is that you know, the Williams sisters absolutely loved tennis. And so like the fulfillment of that plan, the plan of their for their lives was actually the thing that made them happiest. And I think that's something that we often, perhaps because we do have fallen parents. And so when we think of, you know, trusting our parents, like, well, can I really trust my parents? You know, my parents are just other people, as I am very acutely aware as a new parent, I'm like just a person. But our God in heaven actually has a plan. And that plan is the thing that will make me the most fulfilled and happiest in this life. That is, I think, is what makes Richard as a movie character very unique in that unlike other parents, he devoted his plan to the thing that whether or not he knew it made his daughters happy. Yeah. He's the 1% who got lucky. Yeah. Right? And like, the other the other 99% of the time this sort of thing happens, it goes horribly wrong. Like, who who is the other tennis player you were telling me about? Oh, yeah. Andre Agassi is, like, famously, uh, his dad, like, forced him into tennis and he hated it. Um, I think he talks about this in his biography. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's like, obviously, Andre Agassi is, like, a really amazing tennis player and, you know, world number one at different times, things like that. But absolutely hated it because he was kind of forced into it. It wasn't out of a love of the sport of his own. So it's not like every tennis player that becomes successful on an international level, like looks back on their childhood with rose colored glasses and says, oh, yeah, I always wanted to do this, whether or not that's actually true. Like, no, sometimes they'll admit that they hated it. And it doesn't seem to be the case here with Venus and Serena. Yeah, they got extremely lucky. But he definitely goes too far at times, though, like where he's going to drive off without the kids because they were gloating that Venus won. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, there were lots of like weird parenting moments in this movie. (laughs) 
Although I will say I I loved the way that the mom sort of like pushes back on him yeah. in a really healthy way. In a way that's just sort of like a good reminder of like as human parents that like we're here to protect our kids and yes, we need to teach them lessons, but also he th- I think that it definitely shows that like Richard did have a sort of single-mindedness to his pursuit of this plan in a way that definitely was unhealthy. One of the lessons that he he sort of foisted on his family, but that I really liked, the way he did it was weird, but the the content of it was really cool. Uh, The Cinderella scene where Mm. the lesson he's trying to communicate is humility and not just being humble about yourself, but being humble when you are provoked not to be humble. He's because he says being humble no matter how disrespected you are, which he like he seemed to have a very sincere appreciation for the character of Cinderella in that regard, (laughs) showing that like, you know, he is not a stereotype, even though he's very aware that people believe stereotypical things about him whenever he goes to talk to some other tennis coach, like he knows how they see him. But he's like, yeah, no, I can I can look at a Disney princess an extremely white Disney princess and still take away a really valuable lesson, which is that, no, it doesn't matter if you you would be justified in getting angry at your opponent or if you'd be justified in rubbing in your victory against your opponent. Stay humble. That's what makes you a happy person, a good person, and a heroic figure like Cinderella. I thought that was really neat. Yeah. Actually teaching virtue. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting too because it's not paired with the false idea of humility, which is that you should be putting yourself down. Right. And this kind of comes on the heels of a scene just before it where you know the girls are all gloating in the back of the car because Venus just won. And they were all like, oh, you're the best, you're the best. I thought it was interesting that it was more an emphasis on don't gloat and don't talk about it to other people and less of a, oh, you're not that good, which I think sometimes we can take humility as not thinking that highly of ourselves. I can't remember who the quote's from that the old adage of humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Yeah. I thought that it was like a really nice encapsulation of that spirit of like what humility actually is. Because like at the same time, he also teaches them to be confident. Anytime Venus is asked to judge her own skills, she either answers right away that she's good enough to beat whoever it is. Or when she's having any kind of doubt, which is very rarely, Richard is the first one there to tell her she can do it and that he believes in her. So like the confidence goes hand in hand with the humility. But I think maybe the confidence comes out a little more in the end just because of her phenomenal, overwhelming success (laughs) as a tennis player. The right form of confidence is that you become confident through success and through trying and repetition and learning and getting better at something. So it's not conf- it's not a misplaced confidence. It's not, I'm great at this thing that I've never tried before. It's I've practiced every day of my life to be excellent. And so I have, she has a very realistic confidence in what she's doing. Yeah. Another good test of confidence is what happens when you do fail at the thing that you're confident about, because we see that in the in the montage of all the opponents that she's beating early on. And I I just when you were talking about that, I just thought in my notes when I saw that I just typed all caps, the disappointed sports parents montage. I love that sequence. It was so, so satisfying. But what makes it emotionally compelling when you're on the other side of that is that you've experienced so much success and you really start to feel it. You're standing a little bit taller than everybody else. And when Venus does fail really for the first time at the end of the movie, 
the test of the confidence is what happens when you do finally lose and how does she react to that, which is so different than the other kids and parents in that montage, which is it really hurts. Like she needs some time alone, but she's able to get through it because her her whole identity as an existential being isn't loaded onto this one thing of, of winning at tennis. You can yeah. see these other sports parents like working out their angst, their existential angst on the sidelines as they're watching the kids. And Venus doesn't have that. Like she really cares about this. She's worked harder than anybody else to get there. But Having lost, she's able to take it and to walk out, head held high, carry her own bag, you know, face the world and not, you know, either be self-abusive or to vent that on somebody else. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point about the like picking yourself back up. One thing I thought was really wild, uh, I mean, apparently this is true, that she didn't play competitive tennis for like nine years or something like that. She was like just practicing. Which, again, like as an athlete, I just find that crazy because there's so much that you learn in the doing and in like having the bad rounds. Yeah. And like learning how to compete at a high level. That period of time is before the end of the movie because like by the end of the movie, she is actually competing. Yeah. Although she like hadn't competed and then she like just shows up at her first pro thing. I don't know how (laughs) – like I need to go check the the, like actual stats on that. Like how do you turn pro without a ranking or a record? Like that can't be right. But (laughs) – Man, I would hate to be a tennis player. I, bl- I believe that that was accurate, the way they portrayed it. I would hate to be a tennis player like Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. And I've worked so hard to be better than anybody else in the entire world at this effort, which is not a team sport. It all depends on me. And I've been better than anyone else I've ever met. And then, like, this high school freshman comes along and railroads me for the first set and a half. <laughs> like... Oh, yeah. Can you? I can't imagine how frustrating that is. Like, I would also turn to dirty tricks about icing my <laughs> opponent to try and turn the tide. Oh, she's also, it was funny. I was looking her up. I mean, yes, they mentioned many times that she was like the world number one. So you'd think she would like have a little more composure. But uh, apparently she's like incredible. She won 14 Grand Slams herself. In the grand scheme of things, she was a better tennis player than Venus. But <laughs> How many did, did Venus win? Seven. Oh, really? Okay. So, yeah, I guess there was more of a difference in success level between Venus and Serena. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I mean, I like tennis and I have watched some of this over the years, but not terribly close. But I feel like the last couple of years have been a lot of, I don't know, profiles, like things about Serena basically being like the greatest sportswoman of all time. Yeah. And I didn't quite understand that until I was looking up her stats. I was like, whoa, girlfriend's like one. Yeah. 23 Grand Slams. Yeah. I think there's only one person who's had has 24 or she's tied for the most. But anyway, yeah, it's like it's pretty crazy. Pretty overwhelming. Super dominant. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought the movie communicated the reason for that really well. Because for a lot of, if not most of the movie, Venus is getting more of the training from the pros. And Serena is kind of following in her footsteps or not allowed to train with her because she's younger. But they explain why eventually Serena is going to wind up being the better tennis player. Because at one point Venus is in practice and she's called away to do an interview because she was a very prominently publicly known like tennis prodigy even before she went pro. And it also made news that it was a black tennis player. They certainly imply that like Richard was a key part of creating the narrative. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Richard was putting her out there in public. So Venus is called away to practice and her coach like turns to Serena basically and says, hey, you want to you wanna jump in here? And the look on Serena's face is like, 
finally, I've been waiting for this. Let's do it. I'm going to practice twice as long as Venus would have because she didn't have to worry about doing the interviews. Yeah. They sort of show it a little bit in the movie. They seem to imply that she just has a more competitive killer personality. Yeah. She just like wants to win and yeah. is pissed that she isn't being looked at and is – I mean, I totally identify with that. It's like the super competitive aspect of it. They, they certainly make it seem like Serena is maybe more successful because she's like the more competitive one. Yeah. I love, I love how they talk about tennis players in that movie, like fire breather, killer, assassin. I mean, that's – they changed the sport too. I mean, obviously they were already being like, oh, you know, hit it hard, but – my understanding is that like the Williams sisters really did change just like the level of power in the sport. I mean, in the same way that Tiger Woods changed golf. I mean, nobody worked out as a golfer until Tiger Woods came along. Like they were setting velocity records with their serves and stuff like that. I think so. Yeah. I mean, they just are like powerful, powerful hitters. One other thing I wanted to mention, which we didn't actually plan on when we decided to do this movie is what's happened recently with the Olympics. If anybody's not following the drama with Russian figure skating right now, the Russian Olympic Committee's figure skating team is going through extreme controversy due to its treatment of female figure skaters. And I think also the male figure skaters as well, but it's more visible with the female figure skaters, where Camilla Valieva was recently found to have tested positive for an illegal performance-enhancing substance. And this is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to how hard the coaches are pushing these athletes with starvation routines, absurdly inhumane practice times, just all sorts of these things. And this movie has a lot to say about how young teenage or younger athletes are trained, which we didn't we didn't plan on. But this movie has a lot to say about the Russian Olympic Committee's treatment of its athletes. And I thought that Richard handled this very well, like he believes in training extremely hard. But he also believes in letting his kids be human beings, which is why he takes Venus out of the competitive circuit at a certain point, because he sees what's happening to older tennis players. The example they use is uh, Jennifer Capriati, who is at first held up as what Venus is going to look like five or ten years down the road. And then she gets in all sorts of trouble legally with drugs and different things off the court because these tennis players are pushed so hard so young that they invariably burn out. And he doesn't want that to happen to Venus and Serena. And we're seeing that in real time. NBC is showing every painful detail, every painful expression on these skaters' faces as they are having serious problems at the Olympics because of this training regimen. So just wanted to mention that because King Richard, which again is up for Oscars at the end of March, uh, has a lot to say about this current event. Yeah, it's interesting. It feels so retro, to be honest, because I feel like in the early 2000s, there was kind of a more of a push for this like hyper early specialization in sports. And then there's been a bit of a backlash. And so now it's much more in vogue to like try and get kids to play a lot of sports so that they are more balanced in their bodies, which obviously, you know, back in the time when Venus and Serena were there, like they went to a specialized tennis school. So in a way, it feels a little bit like a throwback that the, you know, the ROC being so extremely regimented in. Jason, my husband, talks a lot about how Yao Ming is kind of a similar example where like the man was essentially his parents were kind of like put together because they were both like extremely tall basketball players. They were matched by an outside yeah. authority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the rumor. And, and like he, you know, he was basically like playing extreme elite basketball since he was a kid and like his body just broke down in the NBA. 
Uh, it wouldn't be the only part of Russian life that is a little bit backwards seems too generous, actually. <laughs> wrong. Out and out wrong. Did you ever watch the documentary Icarus? I don't know if that was like the source of all of this stuff. I mean, it's basically the, the guy who orchestrated all of the doping for Russia during the Sochi Olympics coming clean in this documentary. Wow. So then it becomes like this whole thing about like the guy is basically like trying to escape Putin and he's been, you know, black blacklisted in Russia and can't go back. And like, it's, it's wild. It's a really wild movie. <laughs> Yeah, right. Because all of this recent stuff happening with the figure skaters is in the context of existing systematic violations of performance enhancing drug policies, which has gotten the country of Russia technically suspended from the Olympics, which is why they're competing as the Russian Olympic Committee. So even then, they are still pushing this hard and they are still breaking the rules and they're still breaking people. To this extent. And it's so sad. I mean, kind of in the same way that it's sad to watch in the movie that like, you know, this poor girl is like 15 years old or something like that. You know, she's, I feel more like she's a victim than it's not like she's, hey, coach, I'd like to start doping with some, you know, low level. Yeah, right. Banned this is, substances. This is not her idea. <laughs> her coach is, she's a minor. She's not entirely responsible for her decisions. The coaches are, and they were responsible for her competing when she probably should have been suspended from the Olympic events anyway. And they told her to go out and compete, and she had a horrible run, and it was the most like emotionally distressing an Olympic figure skating event has ever been. Because of the Russian coaches, primarily, and because they're not able to take the pressure off the way Richard did at certain points. Which is honestly not what I was expecting going into this movie. I thought, okay, well, here's a really serious Oscar bait coaching movie where Richard is going to care way too much and is going to push his kids too hard. So I was not expecting him to take the take the pressure off as much as he did. My only big complaint about this movie is that there wasn't a clip of the kids watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which would have been on at the time this movie was set. <laughs> that would have been nice. Well, I think that will do it for us this time. Kara, thank you for taking us on this journey through sports trials and tribulations. <laughs> I really enjoyed this movie, so. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to help this podcast grow, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to tell your friends and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.